Lexicon Valley is brought to you by MailChimp. The people behind MailChimp appreciate a clear voice, an intentional tone, and just the right word. MailChimp, email marketing for everyone. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Mike Volo, and today, episode number 30, titled Eject at High Altitude, wherein we discuss whether certain sounds are more or less common depending on where a language evolved. Hey, everyone. Bob's traveling this week, so it's just me here. I want to first of all thank those of you who emailed in appreciation of our episode about swearing. I was admittedly a little bit nervous about that show, especially after Bob, of all people, became uncomfortable during the conversation. I want to especially thank my in-laws for not disowning me. I can't promise that's the last time you'll ever hear me say some of those words, but I will promise that it won't be frequent. Also, many of you took up the challenge and correctly identified the word I used incorrectly in that episode. I think Bradley Bonnet, or Bonnet, was the first to write in, pointing out that I said incalcitrant when I meant recalcitrant. A couple of years ago, Robert Hartwell Fisk, he's the editor of the Vocabulary Review, wrote a book called The Dictionary of Unendurable English, a compendium of mistakes in grammar, usage, and spelling. In it, he writes recalcitrant means resistant to authority, difficult to manage. Incalcitrant is meaningless. However, I did some database searching, and it turns out that you can find incalcitrant being used for recalcitrant as far back as the late 1800s. So there is at least some lineage to this. Okay, today's episode. If I remember correctly, the last time I did a show without Bob... I got a little nichier and nerdier than even usual and talked about competitive Scrabble with the great Stefan Fatsis, who wrote a book called Word Freak. So I thought I'd get a little nichey and nerdy again this time and talk about one particular kind of sound that we humans, some of us humans anyway, make in the course of producing speech. I'm going to talk about it with a linguist from the University of Miami, but just a few minutes of background first. About 125 years ago, some language scholars from Europe got together and decided to catalog all of the sounds of all of the known languages of the world. They made a list with characters and symbols to represent the various sounds, and they called it the International Phonetic Alphabet. It's been revised again and again over the years and put into chart form. So you can think of it as a kind of periodic table of the elements for speech. No language uses all of the sounds, but all of the sounds are used by at least some languages. In chemistry, where an element falls on the periodic table says something about its physical properties, right? And it's sort of similar with speech. But instead of electrons and neutrons, we have two other things. The physical structures of our mouth and throat, our lips, our tongue, our palate, our vocal cords, etc., etc., and air. And depending on what we're doing with those structures and air in order to produce a given sound, we categorize that sound in some way or another. Okay, no more background. I said I wanted to talk about one particular kind of sound. The vast majority of sounds that we make in the course of producing speech involve drawing up air from the lungs 
and passing that air through our mouths in some combination of ways to form words. Now, there are a few kinds of sounds, not in English, but they're out there, that don't use air from the lungs. You can think of these as sounds that you're effectively making while holding your breath and using air that's already in your mouth or at the back of your throat. One of these kinds of sounds you've probably heard, or at least heard of, these are the clicks that are used in some languages of Africa, like Kosa or Zulu. Here are some men in the southern part of Africa speaking a language of the Khoisan family. Listen for the clicks. Now, there's another sound in Khoisan and many other languages that also does not use air from the lungs. Here are a few examples of it. This is where my conversation with Caleb Everett, a linguist from the University of Miami, begins. This kind of sound is called an ejective. So to make an ejective sound, you essentially create a pocket of air in your mouth and you shoot the air out your mouth. So you just close your vocal cords completely. You close your mouth somewhere else. That creates this pocket of air. And then you compress that pocket of air by raising your vocal cords. Now, after you've created that compression, you open your mouth and the air pops out of your mouth. And that's an ejective sound. Could you give me an example of that sound? Ah, ah. So the first sound in that syllable I just made is an ejective. Ah. What is that word that you're saying? That's actually the word for bitter in a language called Kekchimaya. Adjectives are not present by and large in European languages, so most English speakers wouldn't be familiar with them, but they're not uncommon. No, it'd be a stretch to say that they're uncommon. Um, they're found in about a fifth of the world's languages, and these languages are found throughout the world, Eurasia, Africa, South America, North America. Okay, so adjectives are present in almost a fifth of the world's languages. Some sounds are far more common, right? For example, the T sound is present in a much greater percentage of the world's languages, and the short A vowel sound, ah, is present in almost every language. But for any given sound, right, no matter how prevalent it is, there has historically been no reason for us to believe that its distribution among the world's languages is anything other than arbitrary, right? That's correct. So languages are constantly borrowing sounds from other languages in their area, in their geographic area. But this is just sort of historical accident, right? What, what languages come into contact with which other languages and what sound speakers come into contact with is just a historical accident. And there's never been any suggestion previously that something about the actual geographic context that a language is spoken in influences the kinds of sounds that are over time likely to be adopted in a given language. So, for example, nobody has ever shown that rainier climates are more likely to yield languages with a certain sound more so than drier climates. No, that's never been shown. And frankly, I'd be really skeptical of most suggestions like that. Well, I, I'm not suggesting it. I'm just <laughs> I know, I know, I know. <laughs> so what you did, simply put, is take a sample of the world's languages, about 560 of them, some of which have ejectives, some of which don't. In fact, again, 18% of the world's languages have ejectives. In your sample of 560, about 16% of those languages have ejectives. So your sample roughly mirrors 
the total in that regard. Exactly. The sample mirrors the previous estimates that have been made of the number of ejective languages that there are in the world. Okay, and so you plotted these 560 languages on a map using Google Earth. Now, before we talk about what you noticed, how is it that you can locate a language at a single point on a map, right? For example, English, while it's not indigenous to the United States or Australia, it is spoken there. But that's not what you were doing. You were plotting the languages on a map according to, I'm guessing, where they developed? Exactly. So in this case, thankfully, it didn't come down to my guesswork for each individual language. The creators of this database, the World Atlas of Linguistic Structures, they have estimated the best sort of places of origin for each language in the database. So in the case of English, for instance, the dot is located somewhere near London. There are not dots all over the world because we have a good idea of where English originated. And so that's the case for each of the dots in the database. They represent the best estimates that we have of where these languages developed. And in most cases, it's still where the languages are spoken today. So when you had all of these languages plotted on the map and you looked for the ones with ejectives versus the ones without ejectives, what did you notice? I noticed pretty obviously, actually, that the languages with ejectives occurred in high elevation regions only, with very few exceptions. So if you look in North America, they tend to cluster around the North American Cordillera, which is a high altitude region, including the Rockies. If you look in South America, they tend to be towards the Andes. If you look in Africa, they tend to be in the high altitude regions of Africa. And if you look in Eurasia, most of them are clustered around the Caucasus Mountains. In Africa, some of the high elevation places would be in South Africa and in East Africa. Is that right? Exactly. So the Southern African Plateau and the East African Rift and the Ethiopian Highlands, for instance. And you then got pretty micro in your analysis. You determined which languages developed or evolved roughly a mile or greater above sea level or close to a region that was and which were not. Yes, roughly a mile, and that's the altitude that's generally selected 1,500 meters as being a point of high elevation. That's not something that I chose arbitrarily. That's something that geographers have selected in the past. So what I found was that 87% of the languages with ejectives were located within 500 kilometers of a region exceeding 1,500 meters or were themselves at high elevation. In contrast, of the 475 other languages in the database, only 43% are located within 500 kilometers of a high elevation region. And when you look at the really close, proximate languages to high elevation regions, it's overwhelmingly a lot more likely to be an ejective language than languages elsewhere in the world. So you look at this data and you must think, well, okay, there appears to be a very statistically significant correlation between higher elevation and the occurrence in language of this particular kind of sound, the ejective consonant. And to be clear, this wasn't just a matter of me going through correlations and looking at data until I came up with a correlation. In this case, I had predicted that maybe this correlation would be there, and so I went looking specifically for this, and I was really surprised, actually, that the data met my original hypothesis as closely as they did. But maybe there are other speech sounds that correlate with high altitude, in which case the adjective is not so special in that regard. 
Is that possible? That's a very good question, actually, and that's something that I looked at before going forward with this paper. Even though I had predicted the correlation and I found it, I thought, well, what if a lot of other things correlate with high altitude, for instance? That that would be sort of problematic for my hypothesis, and I found that that wasn't the case. So I went through a lot of different sounds, and I saw that there were none that correlated so clearly with uh, high altitude regions. So the fact that there was not a correlation with regard to these other sounds actually strengthens your research in a way. Exactly. So it's not just the case that, you know, I ran all the sounds through a computer program and a bunch of correlations popped up and I thought, well, what might explain this one? I went looking for a specific correlation. I found that correlation. And in addition, when I sort of tested other correlations between particular sounds and high altitude regions, nothing came up. Okay, let's pause for just a moment and talk about our sponsor, MailChimp. Whether you have a home business or run a large company, if you often send out newsletters, product updates, event invitations, announcements of any kind over email, then MailChimp will help you create, send, and track all of it. They'll even help you market your newsletter on social media. And if you have fewer than 2,000 subscribers, you can send up to 12,000 emails a month for free with no contract and no credit card required. To read more about the company and the services they provide, go to MailChimp.com. That's MailChimp.com. Okay, so the fact that you made this hypothesis, this sort of presumption, gets at the why. Why would this correlation exist? You're not saying that higher elevation definitely causes a language to contain ejectives, but you do think that it might, and you have a couple of theories. Yeah, exactly. I'm not suggesting, as some have sort of interpreted my work, to suggest that as you go up a a mountain, you're going to be more likely to use adjectives. It's not that simple. But over time, we're getting this clustering of these sounds at high elevation regions. And I speculate in the paper that there are two possible reasons I can think of this right now. There might be others that people come up with. The two that I suggest is, one, these sounds just might be easier to make at high altitude because they require the compression of ambient air. And we know that ambient air pressure is lower at high altitudes. So that's one plausible hypothesis in my estimation. The other speculation that I have is that these sounds might help to mitigate water vapor loss. Theoretically, they should anyway, because they close off the lungs. And when we lose water vapor through our breath, we obviously can't do that if we're speaking with a sound that closes off our lungs. So theoretically, anyway, they could do that. And we know that at high altitudes, that's something that people deal with a lot is water vapor loss. If you've ever been to a high altitude area, you know that you can get headaches just from being dehydrated. So those are two speculative, but I think plausible hypotheses of how this correlation might have come into existence. Just to flesh out that second hypothesis a little bit more, at higher elevation, of course, air pressure is lower, water evaporates more quickly, you would then get dehydrated more quickly. And so the theory is that, you know, humans may have evolved to dehydrate less quickly by not exposing themselves to this sort of evaporation. That's the sort of speculative hypothesis that I put out there. I think it's a reasonable sort of testable hypothesis. The critique would be that this is correlation, not causation, right? That truism that we've heard since middle school or high school, that just because two things correlate really well, that doesn't necessarily mean that one is causally impacting the other. And we all know that. 
But in this case, what we're talking about is not a random correlation, say, between, you know, ejectives and hair length or something like that. We're talking about a kind of sound that is made without the lungs and involves air compression and an environmental feature associated with how much air pressure there is. So you can see at least that there's a plausible connection between these two things. But to really get at it and address, okay, is this just a fabulous coincidence, or is there something causally going on here? We have to do experimentation in labs and test, for instance, uh, whether or not these sounds really do reduce the rate of water vapor loss, and are they really easier to make, and test some of the other hypotheses that I'm sure people will be coming up with. Correct me if I'm wrong, there has been some research in the past, I think, 10 or 15 years that suggests at least an indirect cause for the sounds we make in languages from our environment. Actually, what got me interested in this topic to begin with was research by um, anthropologists such as Lee Monroe and Carol Ember, who suggested that languages in equatorial climates tend to rely an inordinate amount, according to their data, on vowels versus consonants when compared to other languages. And their suggestion, um, the suggestion first put forward by Monroe, was that maybe it's because people in warmer climates can be further apart, and because vowels are louder, and these people are outdoors more in warmer climates, because vowels are louder, they may be more effective in these warm climates for communication when compared to people living in really cold climates. Now, the hypothesis that I find most plausible regarding the prevalence of consonants in cold climates, at least at this point, is one that was put forward by Carol Ember, who suggested that essentially in really cold climates, people may be motivated to make sounds that require their mouth to be open less. And we know that consonants require you to open your mouth less. And so maybe that's why we're getting this tendency for really cold climates to rely on consonants an inordinate amount. Anecdotally, I mean, and this doesn't necessarily mean anything, but anecdotally, it at least makes some sense because you think about when you're in really cold temperatures, your instinct is to just kind of withdraw and keep your mouth closed. Exactly. And I've, when, in speaking about this topic, I've spoken, for instance, with cross-country skiers who say, you know, this is sort of commonsensical in some way. Why would you want to make sounds that you have to open your whole mouth for? And similarly, with respect to the ejective thing, we know that mountain climbers, for instance, tend to avoid speaking a lot in order to avoid uh, water vapor loss. So these things are at least plausible. They're intuitive. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily right. We need to do testing, extensive testing, to see if they hold water. So to speak. So to speak. <laughs> Caleb, thanks so much for talking to me. I appreciate it, Mike. Caleb Everett is an anthropological linguist at the University of Miami. Just a quick programming note, Bob and I will both be away for the 4th of July weekend, so our next new episode will be in two weeks. In the meantime, you can get in touch with us at slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. That's slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. A number of people have written to us in the past several weeks, letting us know that they just recently discovered the show, and we're now going back into the archives to listen to every past episode. You can find all of them at slate.com slash lexiconvalley. If you have not already, please subscribe to us in iTunes. I want to thank Caleb Everett and Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcasts. Have a great holiday. We'll see you next time.